Hello, good afternoon. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, my name is Jasmine, and I'm on air today with my good friend, Matthew. Uh, we are recording this episode on Saturday, December 17th, but you'll be listening to it for the first time on Sunday, December the 18th, or the rebroadcast uh, Monday, uh, December the, the 19th. So, Matt, how's it going? You know, it's going pretty good. Um, I would like the weather to become snow or just not be something. Um, less dripping water needs to solidify or go away. Um, but other than that, not too bad. Ready for the holiday break. Um, yeah, looking forward to it. Yes, I'm also looking forward to a break from work. Like I'll have a decent length of a break. But I really miss the snow, too. It's like I never I tell people all the time when I was growing up, I never thought I would say that I miss the snow. But I really, really do. Because I think did you have snow where you grew up or none at all? No, 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 no. Uh, Southern New Mexico, very desert Uh, during the winter. There would be some light snow. um, And the further south you go, the flatter it would often become. So a lot of mountains from the Rocky Mountains towards the north part of the state but new mexico is one of those very large states um we mostly got like really harsh cold winds and freezing temperatures it's like the worst parts yeah like tundra like not fun winter would Um, it be sand blowing and stuff oh yeah 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 yeah. because it's very flat so a lot of always dirt and sand um and i think i've told you like where my husband and i come from undergrad in uh southwestern texas like um I think they were pronounced, but haboobs, like this dust storms would come and you'd see them from miles off. So those are the kind of storms I'm used to. So coming from the land of sand and desert, I love snow. Um, so I'm excited when it happens here. And I know it gets disgusting, but I'm, I'm okay with that sacrifice. Yeah, I think it the lack of snow for me, like it just really drives home like what's going on with the climate. And it mm-hmm. really, it makes me so sad. Cause it's just, it's not normal for it to be this deep into December and the temperatures are in like the fifties or forties and it's own, if there's precipitation, it's just rain. Yeah. It's too too warm to actually uh, get any colder and freeze. Yeah. I don't know. I'm hoping that, you know, we're not officially in winter yet, but maybe once it officially hits, like we'll have some snowflakes, you know, it, it looks nice when it comes down. I'll be sending some cold, snowy thoughts out into the weather. I'm hopeful. Yeah, we can. I I think there is a possibility. I saw it online. um, Potential for a snowstorm to hit before Christmas next week. So we'll see. Um, Okay, I didn't say a a storm now. Oh, I want a storm. I want want it all. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Well. Moving on, this week we're going to be talking about um, Governor Kathy Hochul signing a bill to stop the retail sale of dogs, cats, and rabbits. Uh, For national news, we'll be talking about um, legislative developments with marriage equality. And for world news, we'll be talking about the role of women in recent protests in China. Uh, So the first story, it comes from The Gothamist. It's relatively short, so I'll read this one in its entirety. The author is John Campbell. Uh, It was published December the 16th, and the title is 
New York pet shops won't be able to sell dogs, cats, or rabbits under new law. New York will become the latest state to ban retail pet stores from selling dogs, cats, and rabbits under a new law designed to fight back against shops that do business with so-called puppy mills. Governor Kathy Hochul signed the measure into law on Thursday after cutting a deal with lawmakers to ensure it goes into effect two years from now rather than one year, which the bill initially called for. Once it takes effect, for-profit pet stores won't be able to sell dogs, cats, or rabbits, but they will be permitted to provide space to animal shelters to display pets up for adoption. A handful of states, including California and Maryland, already have similar laws on the books, as do more than 300 municipalities and counties across the country, according to the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Dogs, cats, and rabbits across New York deserve loving homes and humane treatment, Hochul said in a statement. I'm proud to sign this legislation, which will make meaningful steps to cut down on harsh treatment and protect the welfare of animals across the state. Advocates for the law, including the ASPCA, say it will promote more humane forms of acquiring pets by cutting out stores that do business with commercial dog breeders from out of state. Most pet stores source their animals from puppy mills from out of state, Missouri and Iowa and Ohio and Pennsylvania, where we can't regulate their practices, said Assemblymember Linda Rosenthal, a Democrat whose um, district is in Manhattan. But we can say that we want what we want sold in New York State. There are hundreds of thousands of adoptable cats, dogs, and bunnies that are at our rescues at shelters. Rosenthal sponsored the bill alongside Senate Deputy Majority Leader Michael Giannaris, a a Queens Democrat. The new law drew opposition from a coalition of pet store owners that calls itself People United to Protect Pet Integrity. I saw that. I was like, huh? Or puppy. Yeah. Puppy president Jessica Selmer said the law could end up putting at least 80 shops across the state out of business and said it won't do anything to shut down out-of-state breeders. Disappointed just doesn't cover it, Selmer said, of Hochul's decision to sign the bill. We had hoped the governor would see through the charade and recognize that this bill is careless, dangerous, and counterproductive to its purpose but apparently those hopes were too high. As part of its agreement with Hochul's office, the state legislature will have to pass an amendment to ensure the bill takes effect December 15, 2024, rather than 2023. That will likely happen when state lawmakers return to the Capitol in January. So, yeah, I mean, to me, like, at first glance, this seemed to me to be, like, a good story. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did look more into, like, I read the actual text of the law because I was curious if it was saying that, like, people are not allowed to get dogs from breeders at all, but it doesn't seem to be what the law is saying. It makes a distinction between... Uh, someone who's labeled a pet dealer, which would be mm. like a breeder or someone that is selling animals on their residential, off their residential premises, 
as mm. opposed to a retail pet shop. So it makes a distinction between those different things. And the law is about a retail pet shop that mm. they cannot um, sell animals for money that they procure, like procured, like out of mm. state or whatever. Like they have to, but they do have the ability to charge rent to shelters that want to display their adoptable animals in the pet store. So had I mean... you heard of this? Yeah, so I had kind of seen it. I hadn't looked at the text of the bill, um, but I think it's interesting that. Because I mean, I, I I'm not I don't know too much on this, but like even the thought of the ethics of breed, dog breeding itself. So I mean, I guess it's good that there's a distinction, but like dog breeding itself is, I think, pretty up for question. Um, you see a lot of pure quote unquote purebred dogs that are just really not doing well because of like the inbreeding and like the incestuousness that happens with maintaining the quote unquote purity of the bloodline. Um, so yeah. Um, but then I did, I was looking a little bit more in this uh, New York Senator, Mike Gianaris. He's my, I believe state Senator for my area. Um, and there is a lot of kind of, I've seen a few shops in the neighborhoods here in Queens that are those puppy retailers and the conditions are just not great. Um, so I, I think overall this is going to be good because that sort of puppy distribution of like a storefront is pretty kind of gross. Um, the fosters, like I think the story was mentioning are pretty overwhelmed. Um, I have a couple of good friends who do fostering and, it's hard to get a dog fostered and then even getting them into like a permanent family is tough. Um, yeah, I would definitely say, you know, as, as everyone, as anyone knows, I have a cat. <laughs> his, his name is Dre. He, I got him from the shelter. I went to, he was a rescue. He's him a great cat. Siblings. <laughs> he was crying out for freedom. In his little box, all the other kittens were like dazed against the mm-hmm. wall. He was like, ah, ah, and I knew I had to have him. But it's like when you go into the um the ASPCA, the one I went to is on the Upper East Side. Like, in order for me to get to where the kittens were, like you walk past like where the dogs are at. Mm-hmm. And anytime I'm in an animal shelter and I walk past the dogs, I feel so sad because they yeah. look so heartbroken. And it's it's much easier for a New Yorker, like if you live in the city, it's much easier to have a living situation where a cat would be allowed or even if it's not allowed, like the person, your landlord probably won't notice a cat. Whereas with a dog, having the space and the living conditions where a dog is feasible, it's a lot less common and dogs are a lot more work. So when they aren't, when they don't have someone to take them home, they're really just kind of sitting there for a long time. And it's so sad. Like, yeah, the uh, cats can be solitary creatures and dogs, I would assume are mostly just not that. Um, yeah, and I think, I mean, the alternative to all of this is, like, really just kind of diverting, especially monetary resources, to these shelters and foster uh, agencies that are trying to get the animals that are existing already into families that they'll actually probably fit very well with. Um, my husband and I, we have our dog. She is going on 15 years old, or so we can assume. 15? 
Yeah, she's getting older. Um, you gotta throw a keynote for her. <laughs> we'll get a. It'll be a whole thing. We'll get her a dress. It'll be nice, oh, white and flowing. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's uh, she's a little mutt. We rescued her. Um, has been the greatest dog. Um, she was our first dog, and just she was uh, dog house trained outside. So even moving to the city, she really adapted. Um, and she has her very own little personality, very distinct, very her own little creature and being. Um, and sometimes I just hear horror stories of people having paid so much money for a like kind of designer pet and just the kind of medical things that are overlooked for the sake of the beauty of the animal that they're buying. Um, and it's a real tragedy. Um, there's a lot of Trey example, like you said, perfect example was a little kitten looking for a home, found a perfect home. Um, and even the foster uh, dogs that we've met through my friends, like they're great dogs. They just, they're going to need someone who just is willing to do the work with them. These animals have been through a lot. There's a lot of trauma, I think, in their transportation. A lot of them are kind of bust up from Southern states and cities. Uh, so they've gone through a lot. And yeah, I know COVID didn't help any of that because there were a lot of like, yeah, let's get one. And then wait, I got to go back to work and kind of surrendering. So there's a lot of animals in need already. I don't know that we need to be puppy milling them. Did you read, there was a story recently that I cannot find, but I believe it was in England. Like it was somewhere in the UK where like a specific type of dog breed, it was outlawed for people to breed more of them. Or like there's activity behind like trying to push to ban it because like their quality of like I think it was some type of bulldog, like one of those dogs mm-hmm. that has a smush face and mm-hmm. like very small stature, like they have such extensive health issues that people are like it's cruel to be breeding them like yeah. that because you like the look. But I even like know. I think about um teacup variations. Like I don't know what they do oh, to these yeah. animals to keep creating teacup versions, but it can't they- be good. <laughs> Did you know that, um, I didn't know this, but I think like French bulldogs are the ones Uh where they can't breed on their own. Like the only way they can exist is to inseminate the female because the way they are physically, they cannot mate like how normal dogs do. So you have to manual, manually or. And they also similarly like have those breathing problems as well because of that, that, their faces and like their snouts um even like the um what at the dog show after like the thanksgiving day parade like you get to see a lot of dogs but like then you hear the announcers they're like oh toby is owned by like this basketball player this baseball player this mega like millionaire and i'm like is the dog loved (laughs) yeah i don't know i even think like even if it were kept just to that i feel like that would be better than the current situation where you have people who doing like who knows what in order to breed as many puppies as possible in order to sell them like I I don't know like I'm not you know whatever my opinion is about like how ethical it is to be breeding them in general like I think if it were something that were like okay there's people with finances who are like luxury investors or whatever if that, that would probably keep it small and like they would have a vested interest in treating the animals like well, but yeah, when you have all true. these people 
all over the country just trying to make as much money as they can like yeah you'll have the mother just having litter after litter after litter like mm-hmm. she's not healthy the puppies aren't healthy but no one cares because you know mm-hmm. there's a demand and and that's like i don't i think that this law is a good idea because i'm sure there's a lot of people that they just walk into a random pet store they might not even be thinking that oh i want to get this breed or that breed like if that's really what they want they could go to a breeder like if they're serious about it but if you're just Uh, in there with your little kid you probably would be just as happy with a shelter animal and there was also a lot of um i I learned about this through a podcast i think but if you do have like okay say you want a specific breed of a dog there are ethical kind of well, we rescued Noel. It was called like a safe house, safe foundation or something. I forget what it's called. Um, but similar, similarly, what happens is there's a lot of international efforts to rescue um, dogs from like farms and stuff. Um, and a lot of them will be tied to specific breeds. So like if you're looking, I don't know, for a husky or something, there might be a ethical kind of foundation or company trying to rescue them and get those into homes at one, a cheaper cost um, and just a much more ethical way to kind of if you are tied to a breed there are probably ways to go about it rather than going into a a store like this and buying one off the shelf yeah it seems to be like a way to make it just that much more difficult for there to be like a big market to just sort of flood like mistreated animals into it's like if you are filling up the spaces with uh, animals that really need a home like that's already gonna accomplish a lot so yeah i think i i would count this as good news and i hope that you know more states follow this direction you know so adopt don't shop Mm -hmm. um and on that note these are three sites you can go to if you go to aspca.org forward slash nyc Uh, That's the ASPCA of New York. Like you can see their adoption procedures and who's available for adoption. NYCACC.org. That's the Animal Care Centers of New York City. They also are a shelter that's always trying to adopt out animals, kittens, um, mid-aged animals, puppies, older dogs, all of that. Uh, and there's also flatbushcats.org forward slash adopt. So they're an organization that's serious about um, trying to get the feral cat population under control. So like spaying and neutering feral animals, getting them their shots. And uh, you can also see animals that are cats that are adoptable through them as well. So if you're looking for a, a pet companion please consider going straight to a shelter. All right. And um, for our first musical break, this is Safari Disco Club by Yell. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn.
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And Matthew is going to talk to us about the national news story. Hello, everybody. Um, I am reading this article um, from, actually, a site I'm not familiar with, but it's the 19thnews.org, 19thnews.org. Um, this is an article written by, I hope I pronounced her name correctly, Kate Sosin. Uh, it was published on December 8th, 2022. The 19th explains why the Respect for Marriage Act doesn't codify same-sex marriage rights. If the Supreme Court reverses marriage equality, the landmark legislation offers protections for LGBTQ plus couples, but falls short of a national mandate. The U.S. House approved legislation Thursday to shore up marriage rights for LGBTQ plus couples. The Respect for Marriage Act has been hailed by lawmakers as a landmark law that will protect queer Americans for generations to come. The Senate advanced the bill last month and President Joe Biden is expected to sign it, but the bill doesn't codify the Supreme Court's 2015 Obergefell v. Hodges decision that granted LGBTQ plus couples the right to marry. Instead, it forces states without marriage equality laws to recognize LGBTQ plus marriages from other states. It also declares all legal marriages in the United States must be recognized, even across state lines. This means if a marriage is recognized in Maine, it must be recognized in Texas. That part is seen as critical so that queer families can cross state lines to get married, even if their home states don't offer those rights. It also means that married couples can travel without having to worry can travel without having to worry that a hospital in another state won't recognize their marriage in the event that one spouse has an emergency and another needs to visit or make medical decisions on their behalf. The same would be true for interracial couples, who the bill also protects. Although the justices have not indicated that interracial marriage rights should be reconsidered. What does the bill mean for what does the bill mean for people who are already married but live in states that ban LGBTQ+ marriage? LGBTQ plus people who are already married in states with bans would continue to be married. Uh, LGBTQ plus people who want to who want to get married in 32 states without equal marriage rights would have to cross state lines to get married, and their home state would have to recognize their union. National LGBTQ Task Force Policy Director Liz Seaton added, however, that many states would likely face tremendous pressure not to enforce their LGBTQ plus marriage bans. The vast majority of people in the country support marriage equality, Seaton said, but there's old laws on the books that doesn't mean that the state necessarily has to do anything with them. Uh, does this bill have religious exemptions, and what are they? Yes, like the current law, the bill states that churches, mosques, synagogues, and other houses of worship don't have to perform LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus marriages if it is held against if it goes against their beliefs the same is true of nonprofits formed for religious purposes that does not necessarily include religious nonprofits or businesses that form for other purposes for example a charity taking state taxpayer funds would still have to follow the state law 
Um, and that's pretty much it. Um, a lot of this bill is very much focusing on shoring up existing rights, um, but it doesn't do much beyond that. Uh, do you have thoughts on this, Jasmine? Because I have like thoughts, um, but if you want to discuss it, um, that might be a little more helpful. Oh, what? Because you're going to say something negative? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not negative, but I just, I, I think it's fine as a bill, but it just doesn't address where we are in the moment, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like from what I'm reading, because I pulled up the article as well, It's it doesn't seem to go far enough, just like with a lot of the, like, as much as it's good that you have individual states doing things as far as, like, abortion rights and everything, it's, it's not the same as having mm-hmm. it be the law of the land throughout the country, that this is something that you have a right to, like, it's not good enough. And there's and it's a lot like, of people that are left out. And I think the article kind of was trying to get to it, but like the current justices on the Supreme Court are signaling that they are okay to topple down like the Obergefell that has kind of granted same-sex couples the right to marriage. Um, and this just feels like our current Democratic leaders are just, again, not fully understanding the gravity of the moment we are seeing the largest uptake and kind of queer anger um, and anti-queer backlash happening right now um club q where the mass shooting just happened um another right-wing extremist um constantly happening uh, drag shows we were just discussing an event where there's a drag story hour that was being protested in chelsea uh similar to the one that you and i attended um and i pointed out to you like in the event that we went to, I saw the same person in today's video where they were kind of attacking people and families at the new drag story hour. Um, and it feels like the administration and the current Congress are just not seeing the actual violence and assault that's happening against the queer community. Um, and and um, not, to, not to, sorry to interrupt no, you, but as, as a note, um, the drag story hour that was um, being attacked most recently was at the Andrew Haskell um, mm. Library, which is specifically for the blind. So you had a bunch of people showing up to harass, videotape, intimidate, and threaten violence against um people who are in a library specifically for the disabled mm-hmm. and the drag story hour was also specifically for disabled children. Um, so this is the type of people that you're dealing with or that we're dealing with, with like this, the rise of these hate crimes you see, um, whether it's anti-drag queens, like people shooting up um, gay bars and you see this explosion of like anti-Semitic attacks, attacks on black people, churches being burned still. It's really not a game, like the extent mm-hmm. of the hatred. So to see these like half-ass measures, it's really not, it's not enough. Yeah. It pisses me off because like, that's exactly what you're talking about. Like these an underserved community already being attacked again. Like they are, are, the disabled community is already left off in the margins and ignored by our politicians. Like 
it, it is getting worse and worse. And we keep seeing these fractures occur. Uh, and I think this is where I come to with this, with my thoughts on this Respect for Marriage Act. It does nothing for the trans community who are currently under like the harshest attack that we've seen. Um, there are no protections for them in this. This means nothing to them because this is dealing with cisgendered people uh, and their interaction with the law as it pertains to marriage, which there are many queer people who don't even have access or privilege to even get near marriage or any sort of support and foundation. And they're like, this is enough. And to me, this just feels like a Band-Aid on an open wound that's like very deep with internal bleeding. And they're like, but this will mollify people. I think this does mollify a lot of liberals because I think there's a lot of misinformation that this does more than it does. It doesn't do much at all. It just says, hey, if someone's married, you got to agree with that. But we know that the Supreme Court is kind of teeing up things to knock that down too. So it pisses me off, honestly. I think it's a bunch of bullshit, but that's just me. It also, I mean, what you were reading was like talking about, well, if it's banned in your state, no problem. You just have to travel to another state yep. and then move. And it's like, that's not sustainable. It's not sustainable mm-hmm. when you have people who are, you know, like if they have a trans child that needs um, gender affirming care, like it's not sustainable to tell all those people who are living in states that are aggressively banning that health care. Well, it's mm-hmm. all right. You just have to go to another state. It's not sustainable to tell people who are pregnant and in need of an abortion, like, oh, you, well, it's bad here, but like, just go to New York. It's like, that's not, it's not tenable. So yeah. I don't really, you know, but it's it's like it it does seem to be like making it look like it does more than what it does. And it also leaves out the fact that the fact that you have to be married in order to access so many like basic necessities or to have certain protections, you need to be under the umbrella of marriage is also a problem. Like, you shouldn't have to be legally married in order to have the right to visit someone in the hospital. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and it, it, I, I mean, it's this kind of nuclear family view of family. Like, yeah. people are, like, this idea of, like, oh, we're comfortable with gay people, kind of. Oh, but you're a married gay couple. We can understand that. That fits into our thing. But it's like, like in there assimilationist are... thinking. Yeah, yep, yep. Um, and I'm saying this as a married gay man. I think it's just like this construct and people put so much weight into it. Um, and even now, like my husband and I, we talk about what marriage is and what it means. Um, and for us, like, we didn't need this act to pass. I think in way, and we carry a lot of privilege in our own worlds, uh, in our lives, but still like we have access uh to things that other people don't i would prefer you start helping trans people trans disabled people some another community that is actually under threat right now um because this is just not a priority to be honest um, so it's aggravating um it's tough times when we're still dealing with covid uh we're still dealing with a slew of other viruses so it's exhausting and they just it felt like this was a, hey, we did something for you. Leave us alone and shut up now. Uh, and it's just, it's not it. Yeah, it does. It does feel like 
I don't know what the term would be for it, but it's like the same way you see student loan debt. It's like because it had mm. all of these um, strings attached to it. Like if it's the if you make at least this much money, if you yeah. make yeah. if if you owe this much, if you qualify for this program, then you will qualify for that. And it's like the fact that you have all of that it leaves the field so much more wider open for opposition and for it to Mm -hmm. completely get screwed up where no one gets anything. And it's the Mm -hmm. same with having these like piecemeal things like, well, if this, then that, and then maybe the, and it's like the best thing to do would be like, everyone has access to quality healthcare period, as opposed to like, Mm -hmm. well, in order to obtain that, you have to be legally married to this Mm person. You know, it's like, and there's other parts of the world, like I think Cuba recently um, made it so that the definition of family is a lot more expansive because, you know, I'm someone I've been in the hospital or like things have not, well, not like in the hospital, but like I've been in situations where like a friend will come with me to the doctor, or it might be a relative who is not my parent, not my spouse, but is someone in my family, you know, and that's not any less legitimate than me being married to someone. Like, it's an important person in your life. Like, you have an understanding that, like, okay, I'm going to help you through this. That should be enough. So it's, it's like giving more legitimacy to the idea that being, like, linked in in the eyes of the state to one person is like your ticket to something that you shouldn't need a ticket to anyway yeah and i think unfortunately like it for many of my fellow identified cis gay men like we get a little too excited for the shiny thing that's been given to us without fully assessing um and taking in a wider context of what this means because it really is pushing a concept of what family is. It's between two people and their kids. And it's like it, it being, especially like within queer communities, within communities of like multiple marginalized identities, like family is very different to a lot of us. Um, and marriage is a government institution. <laughs> and that's something to remember as well. Uh, it's a government thing. Like, it's a tax break. Um, that doesn't really say much about your relationship in the end. And one more thing, people, we got to stop in, uh, getting engaged in public. Stop putting people on the spot like that. That's a mess. Uh, uh, got to cut that out immediately. Where did that come from? There was. I think it was online. Uh, oh, yeah, it was an audience member at one of the talk shows. Um and someone they were talking about partners, but then this woman raised her hand and she got the mic. The French couple. Was, yeah, that one. And she was like, I proposed to him. He's like, get up when she was on her knee on the Brooklyn Bridge. And I agreed. He was right. That's embarrassing. Stop doing it. And he said, like, I wanted to do it <laughs> <Yeah>. myself. <laughs> I mean, like was there... it got cut off because everyone saw it. Like, I was like, <gasps> and then the yeah, clip yeah. got cut off. But the full story was like he wanted to do it himself. And I know like, like, I, there was probably some machismo in there, sure, sure, sure. But also, stop pressuring people like that in public. It's not fun. Yeah. So, well, you know, and, and not to take away, you know, the importance of anyone's marriage, because like, mm-hmm. I, I understand that that's still 
for many people, for many reasons, like it's still an important step in life or that means a lot to them. But there's a lot of people that get left out. And I hope that, you know, as a historic as this um, act might be, you know, the hope is always that this is, this should be like the floor, not the ceiling, because it shouldn't just be like certain people who get to a certain point in a relationship have XYZ rights or whatever. Like it has to go beyond that. So. Exactly. Like let this be a stepping stone and let's just, let's go do more, protect more people. That's what we need. Yeah, for sure. Um, So for our next musical break, this is one of my favorite songs. Uh, And speaking of marriage, this is from the film Singles that came out early in the 90s. Uh, This song is Seasons by the late, great Chris Cornell. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. Follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at 
objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And next, I will be reading an article for our world news story. Uh, Just because of um, time, I'm not going to read the entire thing. It's quite lengthy. Uh, But as always, I recommend that you look up the full article on your own afterwards. Uh, And just a side note uh, for those who might not be aware, in the article, um, the author refers to the Han people, the Han Chinese, H-A-N. And that is the largest ethnic group in China. Uh, They're more than 90% of the population of the country. Uh, There's also a reference to Uyghurs. Um, And I know that there's been news stories about the ethnic cleansing going on against the Uyghurs. They are a minority ethnic group in China, and they are mostly Muslim, and they speak a Turkic language. Uh, This is a December 14th article in Harper's Bazaar. It was written by Dr. Lita Hong Fincher. The title is Women Led the Largest Protests in China in Decades. Women were at the forefront of protests against China's zero COVID policies. Dr. Lita Hong Fincher traces their work to the fight of feminist groups in the country. Outside a student cafeteria at the elite Tsinghua University, alma mater of China's ruler Xi Jinping, a lone woman silently held up a blank sheet of paper a symbol of censorship in what many are now calling the white paper revolution. Plainclothes agents tried to convince her to move, but she stood her ground as more young women joined her until a large crowd had gathered. If I let fear of punishment keep me from speaking out, as a student of Tsinghua University, I would regret it for the rest of my life, the woman said with emotion, as hundreds of students cheered her on. A few miles from Tiananmen Square at Beijing's Lingma Canal, a young woman read a speech from her cell phone about the need to remember those killed by the government's draconian zero COVID policies. Remember Dr. Li Wenliang, a doctor in China who warned about the coronavirus in late 2019, who was reprimanded only to die of pneumonia. Remember the desperate cries of fire in Urumqi, There are too many tragedies that need to be remembered. Reject the official correct version of memory. Don't be the people, be yourself. The crowd chanted back, don't be the people, be yourself. As China's largest protests against the Communist Party since 1989 have spread from one city to another, a striking number of young women have appeared on the front lines, whether standing alone to hold up a sheet of white paper leading the crowd in chants, or confronting police officers who dragged them into waiting vans. The spark for this extraordinary wave of political protests was a November 24th fire in a predominantly Uyghur neighborhood of Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang, which killed at least 10 people, potentially dozens, including children. Many commented on social media that the residents were barricaded in their apartments because of the strict COVID lockdown, preventing firefighters from reaching them. A striking number of young women have appeared on the front lines. But this time, instead of confining their reactions to online comments subject to heavy censorship, 
residents in at least 39 cities in China, according to the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, took to the streets to voice their anger, with some protesters even chanting for Xi Jinping to step down. While all of China's citizens have suffered under almost three years of zero COVID policies, women have borne the brunt of a likely severe increase in domestic violence due to months-long lockdowns, where residents are imprisoned in their homes, often together with their abusers. Women's rights lawyer Li Ying said that a new domestic violence helpline app she launched in August received calls from around 13,000 people, the vast majority of whom were women, within the first five days of the app's launch, according to Reuters. That figure contrasted with only 600 people who called the regular telephone helpline rung by her Beijing-based Yuang Zhong Family and Community Development Service Center in all of 2021, Li told Zheng Miang a media outlet on WeChat. Some of the haunting protest images of women derived from the Chinese practice of feminist performance art, which caught on in 2012, when around 100 young feminists regularly staged direct action in cities across China to denounce rising gender inequality. Feminists carried out imaginative acts of performance art in public areas, such as shaving their heads bald to protest gender discrimination, in university admissions, or occupying men's public toilets to demand gender parity in public lavatories. Then, on the eve of International Women's Day in 2015, authorities jailed five women for planning to hand out stickers about sexual harassment on subways and buses. The women, who became known as the Feminist Five, were released after international outcry but the government has since carried out a brutal anti-feminist crackdown, censoring feminist content online and persecuting feminist activists. Under Xi Jinping, China's strongman authoritarianism has worsened, particularly since he and the Communist Party Congress did away with presidential term limits and anointed Xi the country's paramount ruler for a third term and potentially for life. For the first time in 25 years, not a single woman was appointed to the new Communist Party Politburo. And there has never been a woman on the Politburo's elite standing committee. Why? I believe China's all-male leaders have decided that the systematic subjugation of women is essential to Communist Party survival, turning their backs on the early communist emphasis on gender equality, which was enshrined in the country's constitution. Violence against women is a necessary feature of China's patriarchal authoritarianism. For 15 years, the Chinese government has pushed young women into traditional roles as dutiful wives, mothers, and baby breeders in the home. Women are expected to marry men to preserve stability same-sex marriage is not legalized, provide an outlet for men's violent urges, and perform unpaid care work at home. Faced with plummeting birth rates after more than three decades of the draconian one-child policy, Beijing adopted a new policy in 2021 of exhorting Han women to have three children. Meanwhile, the government has discouraged Uyghur women from having more children.
sometimes through coercive measures such as forced sterilization. The Uyghur Human Rights Project found that the government has used both incentives and force to push Uyghur women into marrying Han men in order to promote ethnic unity and social stability. China passed an anti-domestic violence law in 2015, but I believe the law will never be properly enforced because keeping the patriarchal family structure intact, even when the woman's life is in danger, is key to the Chinese Communist Party's strategy for surviving beyond the Soviet Union's seven-decade run. Accordingly, violence against women is a necessary feature of China's patriarchal authoritarianism, as long as the violence is contained within the privacy of the home. As long as the government continues allowing men to abuse women in the home with impunity, men are more likely to acquiesce to a one-party dictatorship. Police have now been deployed throughout multiple Chinese cities where protests took place, and authorities are aggressively questioning those who have participated. But the events of recent weeks have shown that a critical mass of young women across China are fed up with Xi's patriarchal authoritarianism. Many have already chosen to renounce marriage and children in a private act of resistance. Others have decided that consequences be damned, they must rise up publicly against the Communist Party's oppression. So, yeah, like I I thought this article was important because I don't think that there's been enough attention being placed on the role of women in these recent protests, just in other stories that I've seen about uh, what's been happening recently in China. Uh, and it, it definitely gave a more like eye-opening perspective on um, some of what is behind these protests. Um, so this was actually kind of a little bit enlightening to see kind of the cultural kind of changes that are happening there um, because I feel very distant from this, but reading through it was uh, a little horrific to read the facts that are happening there um, based around kind of, kind of back to like the idea of marriage, like forced forcing a society into a sort of nuclear family model is creating catastrophe for um, a lot of people back in China, especially women. The amount of abuse that's rampant is just horrific. Um, And then that being the impetus of also like having basically forcing these women out to fight for their lives is both very courageous but terrifying that they have to do this yeah i think so much focus has been about um just covid related restrictions and Mm -hmm. like i think a lot of the headlines that i've been seeing in like western um news sources has just been focusing on that as if that's like the main or the only thing but from the article that this harper this harper's article it really does sound like this was kind of like the the thing that the the match that lit this fire, you know, that being in lockdown or in, under these conditions exacerbated problems that were already there. Like there were already grievances about uh, Xi Jinping, like getting rid of term limits. And I wasn't aware that the one child rule had recently been changed. 
like there's so much more going on that's happening that is not just about like we want freedom from pandemic restrictions it's like that's a big part of it and i guess the way that it was enforced is like a very stunning example of like the power of like the surveillance state like how much they're willing to um put people's lives at risk to get them to fall in line like there as much as i am you know against covid and i think that we have done a horrible job in the west and in the us in particular of protecting people that absolutely does not mean that I'm on the side of like locking people inside factories or keeping people in such a state where it's like they can't escape their home if they're in danger because of violence or because of a fire, you know, like that's just really, that's not sustainable for anyone. So the author of this article was talking about passing, they passed that anti-domestic law, violence law, but there's no enforcement. Um, and it seems like it's rooted so much back to this patriarchy uh, in keeping that concept strong. I think, what was this, the sentence? Um, because keeping the patriarchal family structure intact, even when the woman's life is in danger, is key to the Chinese Communist Party's strategy for sur- surviving beyond the Soviet Union's seven-decade run. Um, just the willingness of the government to say, women's lives aren't worth it that much in order to keep making money, keep going on as we're going on um, and just completely ignoring them. Like there is homophobic sentiments also within this, like that is a frowned upon um, kind of coupling. Uh, and it's just all in place to make sure men stay in power uh, at the cost of lives. And it's, it's horrific. Um, and I'm re- it really yeah. made me feel for the women. Yeah, absolutely. And like, they're, you know, incredibly brave for speaking out, you know, and I I know that when I was a contact tracer, I can't even say during the height of the pandemic, because every day the pandemic seems to be reaching new heights in this country. But we had a part of the script that was about, you know, if you feel like you're in danger in your home, because domestic violence, child abuse, like all of those things did spike and probably are, well, now that there's no restrictions at all, maybe not so much, but like there are people who suffer like when they're stuck in the house with someone who maybe is now unemployed, that was already abusive, or, you know, it's just you, this person and your four walls. Mm -hmm. So much of the abuse is rooted in isolating uh, the yeah. victim so like this is a perfect way for them to just not have any concerns of the outside world finding out and it's i wish the best of luck to those women um and it that's horrendous um they are fighting a very righteous fight um and i think it's even important like even the culture of protest is different there um culturally speaking of how you handle a protest so i wish them the best of luck um none of these things are happening in a vacuum and there is like a longer history to consider. And I like that the author was reminding people of like, there's what the constitution says um, in, in China about equality. There's what, you know, communism is supposed to be about equality, including gender equality. But then what is the reality of what the people in charge are doing? You know, which was, you could say the same about, 
many other places in the world, you know, it's like they have all the lofty ideals that they claim to be representing like for the government or whatever, but you scratch the surface and whether it's the US, China, Iran, you know, you see men treating women like garbage, you know, and getting away with it. Like you see putting profits and productivity and the economy above the people's well-being it just shows up in different ways in so many of these different parts of the world so so thank you so much for hanging out with us this week uh you've been listening to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn stay tuned for more uh, brooklyn-based community radio on the station and we're going to play you out with the dave matthews band this is two-step Have a good week, everybody. Bye. Bye, everyone. Oh, I need-